Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from San Francisco and the St. Regis Hotel, one of my favorite cities in the world. In fact, I used to live here for many, many years. My next guest, somebody who knows San Francisco a little bit, maybe better than you do. She's the contributor to Time Out, Shoshi Parks, how are you? I'm good, thanks for having me. Um, You're from the Bay Area. I am. So, I mean, I can actually call you a local. I I think that's accurate. But you started as an archaeologist. I did start as an archaeologist, yeah. And the transition happened to food and travel writing because? Um, Well, academia is a tough place, (laughs) and I didn't really want to be there anymore. So I decided to take uh, my love for history and put it into my other loves, which are food and travel. Well, have you been able to incorporate archaeology into into loving and learning about San Francisco as well? Oh, absolutely, yeah. There's some really fascinating archaeology here, both sort of maritime era, you know, uh, post-gold rush, um, pre-Victorian maritime Where do you find the maritime stuff? Uh, You're going to find that down in what is now either Fisherman's Wharf or actually more consistently you find things in sort of the North Beach and Jackson Square area, which were filled in later with um, sediment to create those neighborhoods. But once they used to be uh, the shore, so there was a lot of piers and such there. Wow. Because, look, there are a lot of piers today. And I'm not talking about Pier 39, which everybody knows. Or, and, by the way, you know, there are some great things to do over there. But I'm talking about before you even get there, if you're yeah. coming up around the, the, the Bay Bridge, mm-hmm. right, 
those peers are really still working peers. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, people are, uh, I think, surprised sometimes to find that there is still a really significant industrial portion to, to the city, um, but it's a little bit concealed. You wouldn't necessarily know it was there. Although you you go to one of these piers, and it's just like this dark, open pier, and what's next to it, like this, this a dive bar called the High Dive. Right? Yeah, oh, the High Dive is fantastic, yeah. All right, it's just, it's just sitting there, you go, what's that? <laughs> yeah, just randomly placed, yeah. Yep, that's a classic. Exactly, so when we talk about the class, that's truly a dive bar, I mean, mm. it's, it's right. What are your favorite dive bars here, then? Oh, my gosh. What a good question. Um, so some of my favorites, I can go just neighborhood by neighborhood. Yeah. Um, in the Mission, one of my favorites is called the Lone Palm. Um, that one's sort of a, it's a little bit, has a little bit of a 70s. Um, uh, hey, Dashbury? Uh, no, I wouldn't say that so much as kind of a dinner club type of feel, but yet in a dive bar. It's sort of a strange combination of That things. would be a strange combination. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I love. Because when, when, when I first moved to San Francisco, I lived in Noe, uh -huh. which nobody even knew about yeah but it had oh, the best weather in town yep right but in order to get to know you had to get through haight ashbury yeah and those look and that was jefferson airplane time and mm -hmm. it was right and there's still a fantastic dive bar that's still kicking on um hate which is called obzomzoms um and that is that's been there since i believe i want to say the 40s i might be a little off on that um but it's got this great sort of horseshoe bar um you know dark red walls it's it's a classic i love that spot. and of course to get from where I was living to where I was working, you went through the Castro district. Yeah, yeah. And and the Castro, I, in terms of dive bars, I guess there's not all that much these days there in the Castro. It's, it's No, but you had the Castro Theater. You, oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. Yeah, got to love the Castro Theater. Still a, still a staple of anybody who visits the city or, or lives here. So for somebody listening to the show who's never been here before, who's coming to visit you, what's the first place you're going to take them? You know, I've been thinking about this a lot because I actually have family coming into town next week. So uh, you, you're asking me the perfect <laughs> question. So one of the places I absolutely love to take people to, I'm, I'm a history buff, so I, obviously, so um, I'm more drawn to those historic spots. And one of my favorite places is called the Musée Mécanique. Um, it's a little museum that contains all of, well, maybe not all of, but many of the early mechanized puppetry and games that came from what was once Playland, which was the amusement park on our beachfront. Wow. Um, so this little uh, museum used to be out on the beach, and they, a few years ago, moved it to actually Fisherman's Wharf area. So it's sort of the one thing in Fisherman's Wharf that people tend to miss um, because it's just in this little sort of building off to the side. Um, but you can go in. It takes quarters to play these. Um, and they still work. They still work. They're incredible. I mean, they're they're not, you know, they're early mechanization of, of interesting scenes that at the time would have been fascinating for folks. I just, I get such a kick out of them. Okay, so you're going you're gonna to basically warehouse your family there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then where? <laughs> Um, then I think um, I always am a fa big fan of North Beach um, and everything in North Beach. Totally walkable. Totally walkable. Yeah, don't um, try to park your car there. It's not oh going to work. Gosh, no, please don't. Um, nobody needs extra parking there or extra cars there. Um, but everything from uh, the church front, uh, the famous church uh, steps on which Marilyn Monroe and Joe DiMaggio had their wedding photos taken to um, the jazz clubs at which... By the way, speaking of Joe DiMaggio, yeah. a little known fact... In the 1989 earthquake, yeah. he was living here then. He was alive. And as everybody was racing out of their buildings, and his building was in trouble too, it was kind of slanting down, he was running out carrying bags and bags of $100 bills no. because he had made so much money signing baseballs for cash that he never declared. <laughs> it was a little embarrassing. I've never heard that before. Shoshi, I'm going to give you my little quick tour that I like to take my friends on. Let's do it. And nobody's doing this tour, trust me. Okay. Nobody does this tour. <laughs> 
When I was working for Newsweek here, I covered some pretty crazy stories. So where do I go? I go next to the St. Francis on Powell. I go across the street where there used to be a United Airlines ticket office and a phone booth. And that's where I was standing back in 1976 when Jerry Ford came out from speaking at the Foreign Affairs Council. And that's where Sarah Jane Moore took the gun and shot at him. Oh, you're kidding. The bullet is still in the wall there. I can show you the bullet hole. Really? Yep. That was a crazy day. I mean, crazy day. And and three days earlier, I take my friends, if you want to go back to history, I take them over to Moore Street because that's where they busted Patty Hearst. Ah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, was, that's right. Those are very, very crazy days. Yeah. You yeah. know, and then down to Daly City where Patty got some loan money here. And I mean, it's just, it, you can actually do a Patty Hearst tour <laughs> totally because can. if you went up to by, by the Fairmont, her parents lived right across the street. And so we were always camped out there during the days that she was kidnapped and on the run. Sure. You know, there's so much of that story still here. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So we're back to your family coming. You, okay. you, you take them to a museum that not many people know. Yeah. Where else are you going to take them? Oh, gosh. Okay. So, um, I, in addition to uh, being a big history buff, I'm a huge foodie. So um, I uh, definitely, we, we've got to focus on some food. Yep. Um, the Cliff House and the Sutro Bass area, I think, is a fantastic place to go for people who have never been to the city just to get a sense of how, you know, incredible that ocean is with the cliffs. The Cliff House has some great brunch options. Um, I'm a big fan of their um, various eggs benedicts with crab. Um, yes, you <laughs> need to take a nap after that. Yeah, you, you really you do. You have to take a um, nap. Not to mention all the free popovers that they uh, feed you as you're waiting for your meal to arrive. Um, and then right next to that are the Sutra Baths, which um, are the remnants of what was an original uh, bathhouse, a In swimming fact, if area. In fact, if you go to the Cliff House, they have photos on the wall they do, yeah. of the Sutro Baths. Uh-huh. Uh, and yep. Then you got an idea of what it really was. Right. And the Cliff House itself has been there for well over a century. I think they're they're coming up on almost 150 years now. So um, so those two are quite intimately connected. Um, and the Sutra Bass are now just ruins, but they're they're very interesting uh, to me, at least. And of course, so that's where we'd start, I think. There's a place that's known for inventing the Pisco Punch. I know it. You know it. The Buena Vista Cafe. The Buena Vista Cafe. Well, actually... I don't mean to correct you, sir, but yeah. Buena Vista Cafe, that's the Irish coffee that they invented. The Pisco Punch, as far as I know, was actually invented at the Old Ship Saloon. Really? I might be making that up. Wow, okay. <laughs> but uh, Buena Vista well, is definitely coffee, known for about. that Irish yes. coffee. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and the Pisco Punch is absolutely a, a San Francisco-born thing. Apparently, what made it so uh, desirable back in the Gold Rush days was that they were infusing a bit of cocaine into the drink. Yeah, so uh, not doing that these days, but... You're sure. <laughs> I guess I'm not positive. But. Okay, fine. Be that way. <laughs> but the bottom line is what I love about the Buena Vista Cafe yeah. is you go there either as the beginning of your day mm -hmm. or at the end of the day yeah. because then you can always hop the cable car. Oh, yeah. And the cable car is a must-do, must I think, for, for those, especially who have never been uh, to the city. And that's a great line because you get some spectacular views. Of, well, because you're going up that hill. Yep. You're yep. going up that hill. You're going very, very high. <laughs> yeah. I know. What's the biggest surprise for you about this city? Oh, well, you know, I think what continues to surprise me about this city is just how incredibly beautiful it is. Um, I, I know that's kind of a cop-out in a way it to is. say that. It is. But, you know, it, it, I find that 
each neighborhood still, e even though this city has changed significantly in the last decade especially. Well, one, one of the big changes, because when I was here, what was off limits has now been developed. And it was the prime piece of real estate owned by the United States Army, mm -hmm. the Presidio. And the Presidio, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and uh, now there's quite a bit more to do in the Presidio in terms of um, certainly around the main post where there are now several museums. They do a weekly, actually twice a week, they do an off-the-grid event, which are food trucks that are there at the main post, and they set up fire pits, and um, you know, there's a, a, a sort of bar type of situation as well. They have live music. Um, so, so the I love how you described it, a bar type of situation. <laughs> Is that a police call? We've got a, yeah, bar, a bar type, type of situation, situation here. Yeah. Please send all yeah. Please send all units. The place where you can order drinks, let's say that. Okay, that's fair yeah, enough. Yeah. <laughs> and your favorite drink? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I think I'm going to honor San Francisco and say that uh, I'm a big fan of the Pisco, uh, Pisco Punch. Yeah, that's definitely a, a top top drink for me. And by the way, San Francisco is not a driving city, so you can actually go get a drink and not get in trouble. <laughs> That's true. I've had uh, many a nights walking home for simply that reason. Yeah. Many a nights walking. <laughs> I won't even open the door to that. Okay, fine. <laughs> We're talking to Shoshi Parks from Time Out. And yet, every time you look around here, there's another restaurant opening. Yeah, uh, we've got an incredible culinary scene and it, it's just exploding right now. I mean, new spots are opening constantly. Be a rapid change in cabin pressure. Oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat, free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63. Think about this. San Francisco every year. Uh, as the 13th most populous city in the United States, also gets about 25 million visitors a year. My next guest can boast of getting about 850 of those, meaning 850,000 of those visitors a year, from, a, from an opportunity and an experience that, hard to believe, is 50 years old now. It's the Exploratorium, and he's the executive director, Chris Flink. How are you? I'm great, Peter. Thanks for having me here. And yes, this is the Exploratorium's golden anniversary year, and we're celebrating... Uh, in all sorts of ways, and very, very proud to be, uh, you know, on the front doorstep of San Francisco for so many visitors like yourself. Now, you're a New York transplant. You came out here for undergrad at Stanford, and then you stayed. Uh, it's hard not to love the Bay Area, and uh, your visitors and uh, listeners, I'm sure, will have a great time when they're here. And you should know that the uh, number one museum in San Francisco, according to TripAdvisor ratings for, from folks just like them, has us uh, as the Exploratorium at number one. Well, let's talk about the definition of of a museum or an activity or an experience. I'm a big fan of being interactive. I'm a big fan of, of being participatory. Um, that's what you guys do. Yes, the Exploratorium's museum is one of science, art, and human perception. And I think the wonderful creative accomplishment of the organization... By the way, I failed all those courses in school. <laughs> <laughs> well, the good news is uh, our, our founder, Frank Oppenheimer, said no one ever failed a science museum. And, uh, so there's hope for me. There's hope. You'll, you will not fail your visit. Nobody ever failed the <laughs> Science Museum. That's good. I like that. <laughs> but uh, we, we explore these important topics uh, with really extraordinary hands-on learning experiences that don't just uh, convey important information and spark curiosity, but they're a lot of fun. If you come, you'll see visitors having a great time with their families, uh, people of all ages, I uh, love our exhibits and our exhibitions. I have to tell you this, and this is a true story and it's a fact. Every time there was open school night where the parents got to meet the teachers, as my parents would go to each individual teacher from chemistry, math, physics, 
the same question would be asked of my parents. Dr. Mrs. Greenberg, you didn't really have a hope of your son becoming a chemist, did you? Good, because it's not going to happen. This one and every. So it got to the point where when one of the physics teachers wanted to demonstrate static electricity or centrifugal force, I was used as the model because he knew he couldn't. I, he had to do something with me. So he got to see my, head, my hair stand on its head or, or on its end or, or, or you know, a bucket of water not falling out when you whipped it around the room. You have basically, uh, on a very basic level, those kinds of experiences and more. Many. We, we have roughly 650 uh, hands-on exhibits on our floor today on Pier 15 in San Francisco. Uh, it's a really a wonderful adventure where, where the visitor can explore, uh, led by their own curiosity. And fundamentally, Peter, one of the things your own educational experience is pointing out is that particularly today with, with um, all the tools available to us, it's not about more information. The world needs more inspiration. We need young and, and older people alike to get excited about these topics, personally engaged in them, viscerally connected to these topics because they're shaping everything from civic discourse to the job market of the future. As my mother once told me, it's not about being interesting, it's about being interested. That's right. We celebrate curiosity as one of the great uh, forces in the world, and we like to stimulate it and uh, uh, turn it towards really important topics. So as someone as challenged as I still am in these areas, what would you want to show me at the Exploratorium that I might actually learn from it and apply it in my own life? Wow, there, there are really so many things. We, we uh, of course, have Start with the basics because I'm an idiot. Okay. Well, the first thing I'd say, Peter, is I would, I would unleash you rather than lead you. <laughs> I would encourage you to, to, to... You want me to sign the damage waiver? To, to, follow, yeah. your, to follow your own uh, interest and your own curiosity and, and, and wander the Exploratorium. We, we try not to because be I'm, too I'm, directive. Because I'm, I'm assuming you're going to deal uh, with concepts in a different way. Yeah. You'll deal with gravity. You'll deal with electricity. You'll, you'll deal with all the things that we take for granted in our lives and break it down. It's, it's truly wonderful. We put what we think of as the scientific phenomena at the center of these experiences. So they, are, they appeal across ages because it's not a textbook unfolded on an architectural space, but rather a set of laboratory-like experiences where we, we really put forth the most charismatic phenomena. The ones you're talking about are from the world of, of the physicists, the physical right. scientists, you know, light, motion, sound. And we've uh, you know, got in Gallery 3 an ex extraordinary collection of those. We've also been really important, innovative work exploring the life sciences and the environmental sciences uh, and really interestingly the uh, sort of um, social sciences if you will the human phenomena how we interact with each other cooperate compete sometimes acting not in our best individual or collective interest these are really important concepts to understand where your own behavior becomes part of what you study do I get to blow stuff up in, in, I had a, to small, ask the question. in a small scale there's yeah. there's definitely a, a plenty of um, uh, rambunctious energy that can be unleashed at the Exploratorium. We have about 160,000 field trip students coming from around the Bay Area every year, and it's one of the most popular destinations for such things. And again, uh, I get countless stories wherever I go about adults who talk to me about how formative that was to them and how that created a, a trailhead to, for them to pursue their own learning in one topic or another. And if nothing else, at a very high level, it's a place where people often discover the joy of learning which is really the gift that keeps giving. If you can learn a, a piece of content about light as a motion, uh, you know, light as a particle or light as a wave, that's, that's okay. But it, what's really great if you can learn that learning these things is fun and joyful and something I am into doing. I'm old enough to remember, and maybe you are too, I grew up watching a television show called Mr. Wizard with Don Herbert. And it was a Saturday morning show for kids that explained science, but he would like do it in such a way that you would understand what happened if you touch this wire to that post and you go, got it, you know, or, or make a penny blow up or, or 
destroy some myths, right? Mm-hmm. There was, I grew up with a myth, okay, and I'm sure you did this, that if you put somebody's tooth in a, in a glass of Coca-Cola, it disappeared in a, in a minute. Yeah. But it didn't. Or maybe it did. I don't know. No, it did not. It did not. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> but I, I think what you're describing is um, an inquiry-based approach, which is very core to our pedagogy. Our, our yeah. way of learning happening is to start with questions. We celebrate and honor the question much more than uh, obsess about the answer. It's and, not about spreading answers. It's about taking you on a journey with science that's almost more like a verb than a noun. It's not the science in the textbook and we're going to spread the chapters out for you to read in your, your visit. It's science as, a, as an approach, you know, the scientific method. Th- these are ways of thinking that are very powerful. And in the search for common ground, if you can come up with a question that everybody's got in their mind but has never been answered, you've just hit a home run. Absolutely. And that's exactly what you guys do. Yeah. How often are you open? Uh, we're, we're, we're open... Uh, we're open. We're open on Pier 15 in San Francisco most every day. You can go to exploratorium.edu and uh, get the specifics. Importantly, uh, for adult audiences over 18, we're open Thursday every Thursday night as well for After Dark, which is a really exciting thing. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. Two people who live in the urban forest here at Mount Arenal, I guess. How about that for a segue? The authors of 100 Things to Do in San Francisco Before You Die, Kimberly Lovato and Jill Robinson, welcome. Thank you. I mean, I used to, in, in the interest of full disclosure, I used to live in San Francisco. The biggest mistake I ever made was when I sold my house. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, my God. I used to live in Noe Valley. Oh, my goodness. With the best weather in town, although I dream of living in Seacliff, but that's another yes. story. <laughs> you could be retired by now. I, I, just by selling the house. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Uh, but the cool thing that I noticed when I first came to San Francisco, I moved up here from Los Angeles. I was working for Newsweek. And in Los Angeles, we have 86 separate incorporated cities in desperate search of a community. In San Francisco, you've got real communities and real neighborhoods. And it's such a manageable place. It, it, it still takes me you know, fig- 15 years to figure out how to get around in L.A. In San Francisco, I figured it out in about a week. And that's not the, to the little San Francisco. That, that's how great it was and still great it is. But when I was first here, and I won't going to tell you what year that was, but when I first came here, the food scene was nowhere where it is today. I mean, not even close. Uh, you had a couple of places in Marin. You had a couple of very old uh, restaurants like Tadich's and Sam. I mean, all those, you know, yeah. the old the old guard, right? And you hold, they had the old Italian places in, in North Beach. Things have changed, haven't they? Oh, yes. Yeah, San Francisco. I think, um, you know, New Yorkers might disagree, but San Francisco's will argue they are the food capital of the U.S., but there's something for everyone here. And even those old guard places are still great to go. I still love... Chipino at Tadich Grill, but there's so I was just looking at a list this morning of new places to eat, and I just can't keep up. Well, I found one last week called Angler. Angler. Yeah, yeah. and you know, I mean, I'm a big seafood guy, so anytime okay. you can do that. Oh yes. I know, but here's the thing: in New York, if you walk up and down the streets of Manhattan, on any given block, there are anywhere between nine and fourteen restaurants per street. There are nineteen thousand just in Manhattan alone. Holy cow! Right? I know. San Francisco is a little more un- uh, under control. It's it's a little more sca- a little more manageable on a scale wise, but I think um, San Francisco Travel Association told me a couple years ago that there are more than three thousand restaurants here, but the city's a lot smaller than Manhattan too. So, which is what I like about it exactly. <laughs> well, well, we'll talk about the food op- opportunities in a second, but let's talk about 
what's also changed in terms of, you know, people want to come to San Francisco and do the usual things, right? Got to go to take the tour of Alcatraz. You got to go across the Golden Gate. You got to, you know, you got to go look at the Coit Tower. I mean, you, we, we can go down that list. They're going to look up and see the Transamerica building. I mean, what's new and different? There are a lot of things. There are a lot of different ways to look at San Francisco history that aren't necessarily new, but new to people who haven't, you know, who only pay attention to the Golden Gate Bridge and Coit Tower. So if you think of the Barbary Coast Trail, that's not new, but that's something that as you follow the old history of San Francisco up in like Embarcadero area and financial district, you're able to stop and read a lot of the history of the city that has disappeared, essentially. Exactly. And the thing is this, if you just use San Francisco downtown as a base within three miles, just use it as oh, a yeah. hub and, 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 and you can walk it if you want to. Yeah, easily. Or hop on the cable car. But it is, it is, I mean, people, San Francisco has a reputation of having a lot of hills, which it does. But since I drive a stick shift car, I know all the ways to get around avoiding the hills and you can do it on foot too. <laughs> so. And of course, how many times have you come down Lombard Street? Many. <laughs> with a stick shift? Yep. Okay. Sure. And you've survived. I've survived. And so have the passenger, or the pedestrians. Although in all fairness, the people who live there must be basically taking hostages by now because the traffic is out of control. It's out of control, and there is uh, some chatter now. I'm not sure if it's going to pass about charging cars to drive down, which I think is maybe not a bad idea. Well, look. Look what they've done in Venice. They're, they're looking at a, at, a, at a rule now to put turnstiles in St. Mark's Square. Oh, is that right? They I mean, tested that out last summer, and I think. It did, and it didn't exactly work very well. It was crazy. Yeah. And the there were no turnstiles. No. But, I mean, look, the bridge, of, the bridge of size is actually the bridge of thighs. I mean, it's like out of, with everybody with their selfie stick. So in a way, before we talk about the cool things, can I, can I suggest people that they try to avoid some of these places and, and, and figure out some newer places to go? I think it's good. I, everybody, it's, it's really difficult to tell someone, don't go to Golden Gate Bridge, because a lot of people really want to see that. But there are different ways to see it in different locations. So maybe going to the waterfront and walking along, you know, paths there or having dinner with a restaurant that has a great overlook. That's a great way to see Golden Gate Bridge instead of walking across it. So well, I think I there to are ways here, to experience without avoiding this. What I used to do here is go biking by the old Safeway at the marina. Oh, yeah. You know, because just, it's just open space. Yeah, and, it's great. and Chrissy Field, that's what she, Jill was talking about. Chrissy Field is, I mean, it's probably the best place to take a picture of San, the Golden Gate Bridge, too, because you can see the whole span, and you don't have to go across it unless you really want to. But Okay, here's a piece of trivia that you probably didn't want to know. San Francisco's Golden Gate Bridge, of course, has been a capital of suicides for so many years. But here's the piece of trivia most people don't realize. Of all the people who have jumped off the bridge, only, I think, three of them jumped facing away from the city. They oh. all wanted that last view of the skyline. That is interesting trivia, Peter. Where did you find that? And why didn't we put it in our book, Jill? Well, aren't you glad I stopped by today? Yes, no. thank you for coming. Isn't that interesting? That gives you an idea of the, of the view that people still wanted to have oh, on, yeah. on the way down. On the way down. Yeah. I have a feeling that would have been pulled from our book by the I think publisher. So. You want to know something? Don't ever let them pull that information from the book because people need real information. Yeah. It's not just puffery. you got to tell the story. That's right. Well, exactly. yeah, 100 things to do before you die. All right, so, It's okay. in the title. Well, well, obviously, well, that would be the 101st because then you will die. <laughs> I mean, let's call it what it is. But let's get serious for a second. You call it 100 things to do in San Francisco before you die. What's at the top of your list? You know, um, that's sort of a misunderstanding of the book. We don't rank these. These are 100 things to do. And I'm you asking can... you to rank oh, it. Oh, rank it? Yeah. Um, what I mean... would you do? You, okay. I, honestly, I mean, it, it really depends on if you're a first-time visitor or a fifth-time visitor. So Let's I'm, start with the first time. If I'm first-time, I would go to Chrissy Field, as we were talking about, and see the Golden Gate Bridge. I would ride a cable car. 
I would, sorry, I would go to the uh, cable car museum because it's free and you can actually see the cables, the, the wheels that turn the cables and it's kind of cool. It's this visceral uh, experience. What I love about San Francisco is not just the cable cars, but they kept the street cars. Yeah. They kept the electric street cars and they kept them the way they were in the 40s and the 50s. Yeah. I mean, obviously the maintenance costs are out of control, but you know what? Keep it going. Sure. Exactly. But I mean, where would you take a cable car? Oh, I love the Powell Hyde Street line is the best one because it has the best views. It, if you must go to Lombard Street, I mean, you talk about things to avoid. I don't really get the thrill of Lombard Street because unless you're driving on it, you can't really take a picture of it. But that's a great cable car line because it ends at the wharf. There's Okay, Buena I'm, I'm going to do my, my touristy thing here. Okay. I like that cable car line for another reason. You end up at the Buena Vista Cafe. Exactly, oh, yes. the Irish coffees. Everyone wants to end up there. I'm thinking I might stop there on the way. You want to join me? <laughs> <laughs> no, and that's where they turn them around. Yeah, exactly. That's great. Exactly. What's the biggest surprise? When you were doing this book, what's the biggest surprise discovery you made? Do you want to go? Um, well, it's a, <laughs> the surprise I had was um, something that Jill brought to the table. So when we were putting this book together, we had a, an Excel spreadsheet of about 200 or 250 things to add. But she um, brought Lada's Fountain to the the book, which I loved. And I had passed by a million times, but had never heard of. And, and Jill can tell you a little bit about what it is. But it's a existing living part of San Francisco's history that a lot of people have walked by a million times and probably don't even know. Tell me more. Well, it's only a couple blocks away from here. So it was... Walking distance from the St. Regis. Walking distance from the St. Regis. It's at the corner of Market, Geary, and Kearney Streets. Um, Kearney looks like Kearney to people who aren't from San Francisco. And it was actually... um, presented in 1875 to the citizens of the city by Lotta Crabtree, who was an entertainer at the time. But its notoriety nowadays is because after the 1906 earthquake, it was one of the few remaining landmarks, and people used it to meet up to reassemble their families. We've been talking to Kimberly Lovato and Jill Robinson, the authors of 100 Things to Do in San Francisco Before You Die. Um, My office used to be on Pacific, right near Montgomery. Mm -hmm. And, of course, I'd walk up to Kearney, and Columbus, and I'd always end up at Tosca. Oh, yeah. Oh, and when I was there, it was owned by Jeanette Etheridge, mm-hmm. uh, and who I talk to all the time. What a great character. But if you were lucky, they'd take you in the back room. Yeah. And the back room had the pool table. And who was hanging out back there? Well, you had basically Francis Ford Coppola. You had Phil Kaufman, the guy who did the right stuff. Mm-hmm. You had all the filmmakers who lived in San Francisco, all the writers, all the producers. And what was really cool about it is you, before you ever went there for drinks or even late night, you go across the street to City Lights Bookstore, mm-hmm. which, by the way, is like such an iconic place for great. And hard to believe that Lawrence Ferlinghetti, it's his 100th birthday. 100th birthday. Exactly. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yep. I mean, so you can just do that all in one block area. Yeah. And then, of course, the crazy part is you keep going up to Broadway and there is the Condor. <laughs> Let's call about the. Let's talk about it, Dota. Carol. Do- well, when I was yeah. here, she was she was a big item. Oh, totally. It oh, was yeah. it was it was a, a great stripper club, mm-hmm. right? Which, by the way, I only went in there once to interview her. I never actually saw the show. But the great story about that was the piano and the death. Do you know about the piano and the death? I don't know that. Oh, one. you know I've about. I heard the- this story, but I can't recall okay. exactly how it happened. The, the the club had a piano that was on a riser, and so the the woman who was stripping would be stripping on the piano, and it would be, it would be going up, right? And the, and, the, and the guys could operate the, the elevator to make it go up and make it go down. Well, as it turned out, one night when the place was getting was closing up, one of the strippers decided to have sex with one of the customers oh. on the piano. Mm-hmm. And in the act, they somehow activated the riser 
and it killed her. Oh, wow. Yeah, because... two things to do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was a good... Can I hear that again? Smush. Smush. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I was up at... Uh, there's the, the condor's still there. It is still there. It's I, unbelievable. I can honestly say I have not been in. I haven't either. <laughs> One more thing to do. <laughs> I guess Next so. edition. All right, so as an experience here, as a physical activity, what have you got? Well, so it, the Beta Breakers is known as, you know, the the foot race across San Francisco that's known for kind of crazy costumes and sometimes no costumes. Something that's interesting about it. Well, that, let's not <laughs> talk about the Halloween parade on Polk Street. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, my God. <laughs> well, Beta Breakers is coming up in May. It is coming yeah. up. It's usually the third Sunday of May. But something that, since we were talking about Lotus Fountain, something that we discovered in writing the book is the Beta Breakers started a few years after the 1906 earthquake. I think it was about 1912. And it was named, it wasn't named Beta Breakers at the time, but it was a way to kind of raise the city's spirits after the earthquake. So that was something that was really interesting. Being a Bay Area native, I didn't know that. And so in doing this, this research for all these little pieces, we learned a lot of things that, that we didn't know about events and places that we thought we knew quite well. All right, but that's an event. Yeah. But I'm talking about, okay. for anybody coming at any other time of the year, you know, what is it that you can come do here that is quintessentially San Francisco? I personally love t sending people out to Land's End, which is in the northwestern part of the city. So people know... Um, it's on the water. It's on the water. The Cliff House, people know I've that. Been to, I've been to the Cliff House, But yeah. there are so many beautiful walking trails that go down to little secret beaches, the labyrinth on the beach. You can actually hike it all the way to the Golden Gate Bridge. It takes you part of, through part of the Presidio, some of the batteries of the Presidio. And it's not a strenuous hike. I mean, some of the hikes down to the beach and back up might be a little strenuous but you can ride walk along the cliffs and it's gorgeous you have this view of the pacific it's sort of where the city meets the sea and i love going out there now when i was first here san franciscans really loved their funny drinks um and you'd go to the tonga room at the fairmont hotel and it was like it was a tiki bar we oh still yes love them. we still love tiki <laughs> <laughs> it's still there oh the tonga room's still there yeah. but tons of tiki i wouldn't say tons but it's amazing how how much San Franciscans love their tiki. A couple new ones just opened, I think, within the last six months. Yeah. Right around here, right around Union Square, I think Last Rites just opened. Yeah, people love their and tiki. And of course, we, we, we would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge the largest Chinatown ever. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, it's a great place to walk around. I take my nieces there when they come in town. They love to walk around Chinatown. For me, I love to walk around not just for the dim sum in the mornings. Mm -hmm. You know, like 11 o'clock in the morning, there's some great dim sum places, <laughs> right? And they, you, know, you know how they do it. They count it by the plates. But... You keep walking. They have the craziest stores. Oh yeah, the craziest stores. I mean, forget the dollar stores you see in every other country. <laughs> in other city. These are things you can find something not not made anywhere else. And it's you go, I gotta have six of them because they're so funny. They are funny, and um, yeah, and just yeah, nowhere else in the city can you find them either. So although out in the Richmond now is a little little mini Chinatown going on, but shopping's are eight. That's why my nieces love to go there. They they love looking in those stores. They love eating the egg tarts. They love the dim sum. Yeah, the famous egg tarts. The famous egg tarts yeah. at Golden Gate Bakery. Yeah, sometimes they have them, sometimes they don't. Get there early. Get there early. Sometimes even when they're early, there's just a sign that there are no egg tarts today. Sorry. It's like that Seinfeld episode. No soup for you. No egg tarts for you. <laughs> <laughs> you just never know. <laughs> when I was based here, you know, you had the legendary restaurants, right? You, the, at the Fairmont. You had the, at, the, at the Mark, right? The top mm -hmm. of the Mark. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and they're still around. Yes, I mean, I mean, they haven't gotten rid of them, which I love. Yeah, and San Franciscans. Although, are, although at the Fairmont, they used to have Ernie Heckscher <laughs> yes. and his, and his orchestra. They had dinner his theater. Orchestra, they yes. had dinner theater. 
Yeah, it's a shame they don't have that anymore. But San Franciscans are traditionalists in a way, so I'm glad that some of these places have stuck around. And this year is the 80th anniversary of the Top of the Mark. Yeah. Wow. Great view. Great view. Absolutely. Great martinis. <laughs> well, after five martinis, it doesn't That's matter. That's right. You can just get a room. <laughs> What's the longest standing bar that we know of? Oh, gosh. That's a good question. That is a good I question. Don't know. Oh, I, I can't even remember the name, but I remember going to something that claimed to be the longest standing bar in San Francisco, and it was... In South San Francisco, that one? No. It, it, oh. was, it was in the city proper, almost kind of financial district-ish, but it was, um, it's definitely... It, it's old. And I just cannot remember the name it's okay. off the top of my head. <laughs> it's okay. Do you know, Peter? I don't. But it's got to be downtown. It's yeah, got to be close to the so. Embarcadero, I would guess, or even over by one of the piers. Yeah. You know? I guess Could too. Be. And we're not talking Pier 39. We're talking some of the like earlier Pier, piers yeah. way before you get to the ferry terminal. Oh, yes. Yeah. Where's the best place for breakfast for you guys? What's your hidden breakfast place? Oh, I'm a brunch fan. I'm not a breakfast eater, but I love brunch. Uh, we always we have some great brunch places. One of the places I love that um, Jill actually introduced me to is called Outerlands and it's out by the beach oh, uh, and we always meet there and it's um, I love it because they just have fresh food it's not crowded it's a totally local place a couple blocks from the beach and they have this Dutch pancake that they cook in a skillet <laughs> and you can get it sweet or savory and I'm not really a sweet person I'm sweet very sweet but I don't like sweets but I love the savory because they serve it with bacon and this is what was this eggs in jail time? Oh, eggs in jail. They have eggs in jail there too, which is also great. This <laughs> thick bread with the hole cut out of it, and then they fry an egg in it. But All right, so where are we going for lunch? Yeah, let's go. <laughs> where are we going for lunch? We can go to, let's see, La Cumbre, Taqueria. For a burrito. To get a burrito, a mission style burrito, which is rather large and sometimes I can't finish all of mine. When I first came here, I discovered quite by accident because I made a wrong turn, the Mission Rock Resort. Oh, yes. All the way down in, in, in the place. old Docklards. Yeah. Bad neighbor, crazy bad neighborhood. I think oh, it's Dog it's, Patch it's, now. Yeah. Now it's, it's trendy. better now, and that's <laughs> where the new Warrior Stadium is being built. Yeah, Chase Center. So get there while you can. Get yes. there while you can. <laughs> All right. And what about seafood? Oh, you should... You, well, you're a seafood lover. I'm sure you've been to Swan Oyster Depot on Polk. Oh, yeah. I mean, you got to line up, but it's totally worth a, a seat at the counter for... Anything fresh there. I mean, they, they always have something fresh. I love the crab louis salad, to be honest, but um, you can get oysters. Well, I'm, I'm a little bit of a trader. What I'll do is I'll go across the Golden Gate Bridge to Tiburon, mm-hmm. to, Sam's to, Sam's. An- to Sam's Anchor Cafe, <laughs> to get the open-faced shrimp sandwich. Oh, I haven't tried it. There and used there... to be, I really miss one place that's no longer there, the Swedish Bakery. The Swedish oh, Bakery, yeah. remember that? Yeah. Swedish Bakery used to be there, and they had the most amazing chocolate-covered bananas. Mm. Oh, my goodness. That, they're gone, but Sam's is still there. Sam's is still there, still popular on weekends. Absolutely. What about dinner? Uh, yeah, again, always depends on what you like. I mean, we have great steakhouses. We have, gosh, what do well, we Well, I mean, it's still Tadich in the seafood. Grill. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's still in the seafood category, but Tadich Grill for the chipino is... For the crab chipino. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's the old Portuguese dish from all the fishermen who started this thing. That's right. That's right. Uh, the Italian and Portuguese on the wharf. Apparently, I don't know if it's true, but apparently they would just throw all their... Fish parts and not scraps, but into a bowl or a no, no, pot they were they were fish parts. <laughs> fish parts, so it doesn't sound as appetizing as it tastes. It's well, very that's why good. they do different levels different of the menu language, now. but it was fish parts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is why I don't write menus, Peter. Fish no, no. parts. That's doesn't right. Sell. Well, there's a whole there's a whole science to menu the menu psychology. I'm sure. Oh yes, and, and what will move is what you what you describe it. <laughs> that's right. You know, they, there's a, a chef once told me you can't put calves liver on the menu. What you do is you say 
Aunt Tilly's calves liver. And people go, oh. And then they buy it. Okay. So mm-hmm. if you ever get to a menu and they say fish parts, you know the guy's an idiot. <laughs> but it probably tastes pretty good. Probably does. And you're probably the only person who ordered it. <laughs> Chipino with fish parts. And by the way, Tadich's has been around since the 1800s. Oh, yeah. It was, it's been around. I think it is considered one of the oldest, if not the oldest, in San Francisco. I don't know. I think there's some debate on that. But it's uh, worth it. It still doesn't take reservations. That's one of my pet peeves about it. You have to wait with. Or they got to know you. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. Hard to believe this hotel was opened actually 14 years ago, 2005, and it looks just as new today as it was then. Great location, although when it opened up in 2005, this neighborhood didn't look anything like it looks like now, and it's such a walkable neighborhood now. So many different things to do. Joining me right now, you know, if you want to know something that's going on at the hotel, you don't necessarily have to ask the concierge. You don't necessarily have to ask, you know, the the bellhop. But the person who sees everything is really the front desk. And uh, joining me now, the director of the front desk right here, Felicity Wells. Thank you so much. And by the way, just to give everybody an idea of how Felicity got to San Francisco, she's from England. And then she held down these terrible jobs. Oh, my God, just terrible. At the Ritz-Carlton in Washington, D.C., and the Broadmoor in Colorado Springs, um, the St. Pancras Renaissance Hotel. I've stayed at that right there at the station, how they redid that station, and the most amazing story about how they redid that clock. It's just amazing. And now she's here in San Francisco as a transplant from England. <laughs> how have hotel guests changed in your mind? Are they more demanding? Do they, do they actually think they know more or they demand more? I mean, I would say um, guests, the way guest travel has changed over the years. Um, from my experience, obviously coming from a very different country, from England to America, you do see a little bit of a different travel. Um, By the way, I don't see a lot of demanding English travelers. They sort of like, like to queue a lot. Right, right. We stand in, yes, we stand in queues, in queues not yeah. lines. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Exactly, yes. And, so. and, and by the way, they'll say things like, could you tell me what time the room might be available in my lifetime? And thank you very much. And right. As opposed to the American traveler who would say, my room's not ready, and they basically want to take hostages. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, I mean, the American culture to the English culture is slightly different. Um, I think as an American culture, they are more used to traveling and travel, um, obviously, around much, a much larger country. So the demands are slightly different, I would say. Um, Although I will say, with your accent, you could probably tell me to go to hell, and I'd probably say thank you. <laughs> I mean, that's the beautiful thing about the English. Oh, right. just do you think you really could just go bugger off? And you go, oh, okay, fine. <laughs> right. No, it, it is nice to have the accent. I, I do sometimes hear See, that a you, lot. And, yes, you, and yes. you use it. Come on. <laughs> um, oh, could I help you please find another room because you're really bothering me? <laughs> It can be an advantage, absolutely. absolutely. But um, but no, it's really about taking care of each and every guest. I mean, that's our highest mission here at St. Regis. But of course, it's more than just making sure there are enough towels in the room. People come in with some really unusual requests. Correct, correct. Okay, in the time you've been here, mm-hmm. give me one. Give me one, one that you had, I have to do what? 
So um, I could list many, but um, one that pops to mind. So typically we see a lot of leisure travelers in the summer. We transition, obviously, San Francisco is an amazing city for our tourists. And um, as we are located more in a business district of San Francisco, um, catering to children is something that we really transition our minds to in the summer. So um, what we did for one family, um, as we don't have a resort-like property with a... Um, certain area for children so we developed a scavenger hunt in-house for some children to to do whilst they visited so that was really fun they got to and go none of the other guests were annoyed <laughs> well it was very, uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was very go to the pool take a selfie um post it on online go down to the front door and get the name of the doorman um go and get a business card from somebody um so it was really a fun activity that we actually then implemented to have across all of our guests so now we give it to all of our families that check in how about the adults is there such a thing as an adult scavenger hunt you know that would be a good idea we should think about that and with enough alcohol anything could happen exactly (laughs) i I mean right (laughs) but okay that was cool because you had to adapt to the environment right right because you're not a resort no so we're not a resort but um as i said we transition quite heavily in the summer months so june july august are typically our busiest months for leisure guests and um, so we really do try to do some different activities for those guests. But you can also send your guests on walking trips just anywhere near the hotel and they're going to find cool things. Oh, absolutely. I mean, San Francisco is such a fun city. There's so much to do. Um, and we're in a great location for that. You can walk to a lot of easy places, um, very close to obviously Embarcadero and in the waterfront. So very well located. What's really cool about the location here that most people don't know is it's not traditional retail shopping. You can walk to like factories and right. you and you can and outlets that nobody even knows about or or right. small mom and pop places where they manufacture luggage. Right. I mean, there's a guy up here who who actually makes the best suitcases in the world. His name is Mr. Glazer, and it's called Glazer Design. And it, you, he doesn't really have a showroom. It's just like three or four blocks from where you just walk and knock on the door and you go, oh my God, it's all handmade (laughs) stuff, which you wouldn't find necessarily on Union Square. Right, absolutely. No, there's a lot of hidden gems here in the city, which uh, really makes it unique. What's the biggest surprise for you in San Francisco? Because you're a relatively new arrival. Right, I am. I've been here about a year and a half, um, so still exploring the city myself. In regards to um, a surprise, I mean, obviously, I would say something that always throws a lot of our guests off, and myself too, can be the weather. We talk about the weather a lot, but um, people come in the summer and expect to wear their flip-flops and shorts, and it's not like that here in in those months. Where are the wagons? The wagon is too slow. Can't you ride? It's not that he can't ride. How is it you put it home? They're dangerous at both ends and crafty in the middle. Why would I want anything with a mind of its own bobbing about between my legs? My next guest has one thing in common with the First Lady of the United States. They're both from Slovenia. However, she left 33 years ago and uh, has really been in San Francisco ever since 1986. Her name is Floriana Peterson, and she's the author of 111 Places in San Francisco That You Must Not Miss. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So here's my question. I, if you've been here for, you know, for 33 years, I'm assuming you've been everywhere in the city. Yes. And you've yes. walked it. And you've and walked, I walked it. it. 
Yes, especially the first year when I came here. I was very curious about the city. And also, I'm from Slovenia where everybody hikes. We are hikers. <laughs> so I, I walked. So this I was walked. not, and you, you walked all the hills too. All the hills, all the stairs. So when you, in that first year that you were here, what was the biggest surprise about San Francisco for you? Uh, the first year when I came here, weather. Of course, when I came here, I thought it's California. I brought summer dresses. I came here in January. And you froze. And I froze. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the biggest surprise. <laughs> but you started compiling notes about all the things that were new to you that turned out to be new to a lot of other people, too, because they hadn't seen it. Exactly. Exactly. So in my 33 years, I really discovered so many places. I also talk to so many people and everybody was always telling me things about San Francisco that I remembered. I, I, um, uh, I like to listen to, to, to stories and uh, that's how I got to know many unknown secrets. So give me one today that still ranks in your book as truly a secret or, uh, or that, no, that most people don't know about, about San Francisco. Uh, well, that's, that's, uh, uh, maybe what? Well, for example, you walk the whole place, right? So you were in all the neighborhoods, you were yes. all in the communities, right? Yes. There's so many different neighborhoods and communities that people never see because they never get out of, the, out of the downtown area or out of the Golden Gate Bridge area. Yes, yes. So, um, what's... What was kind of uh, um, surprising for me that uh, every, every little part of the city has their own weather, their own culture. When you go to the Mission District, where it's mostly Latin district, it's very, very sunny, and you hear music from every window. Uh, people are outside, and then you go to the Pacific Heights, where it's the most wealthy community, and you never see anybody outside or you don't hear music, and those kind of things are a little well, bit Well, when I lived here, I lived in Noe Valley, which had the best weather. Best weather, and it's the, it, Noe Valley has those little farming streets, alleys, that you go, and you think you're in a little village. Well, what I loved about Noe Valley, and it's still there today, they have a great cheese store, yes, right? And, yes. oh my goodness, you could get, you don't go in there and ask for Brie, because they'll say to you, which ones would you like? They have like 25 of them. Exactly, and the cheese store is owned by a Chinese man who grew grew, grew up in Argentina. Doesn't have anything. He doesn't would. have anything to As do with Switzerland <laughs> or France. But so but it works. San Francisco. It's it that works. mix mix of people and interests. And of course, the one neighborhood that I've always wanted to live in in San Francisco, which most people would, who are here would say, "Why would you want to live there? Because it's always so foggy," is Seacliff. Oh, beautiful oh views. Oh, my God, the yes. Beautiful views on the land's end hike starts there, which is my favorite of the hikes. When you go, the, you start at Sea Cliff, and then you go to the Sutra Bat, but in between is this little walk down to the, to the beach, very little beach that people don't know about it, and it's just beautiful. I know. What's your favorite walk? I would say the land's end, and... Um, I love the stairs, all the stairs, um, uh, Filbert stairs. Oh yeah. Yes, um, uh, and the and the beach, the ocean, ocean beach. It's just. But you, it's always but changes. dress warmly. 
dress warmly. Yes. Because it could be windy. Yes. And I like dogs. So you can always, I don't have my dog anymore. So I go there and just enjoy other people's dogs. <laughs> That's like enjoying other people's children. You get to go home. Yes. <laughs> and it works. It works. It absolutely does. Yeah. When friends of yours come to visit you, what's the biggest surprise to them about San Francisco? Um, the biggest, it's the hills. Everybody loves the hills and the views from the hills. And, and, uh, but the biggest surprise, it's actually a sad surprise. It's the homeless. Nobody expects it's going to come to the richest city in the world and see kind of a third world scene there with, with, with unfortunate, and it's unfortunate. Still, and it's still a problem. It's, it's biggest, bigger than ever. Yes, so that's that's a surprise. And hopefully something that can be done about it because at the end of the day, there are resources, there are funds, there are spaces where people can, first of all, get a place to live, but then, more importantly, get a place to work so that they can be self-sustaining. Exactly, exactly. Fargo, Minnesota, Buffalo, Toronto, Winslow, Sarasota, Wichita, Tulsa, Ottawa, Oklahoma, Tampa, Panama, Madawa, La Paloma, Bangor, Baltimore, Salvador, Amarillo, On second thoughts, let's not go to Camelot. It is a silly place. I've been everywhere, man. Across the desert, spare, man. I breathe the mountain air, man. There are a couple of words and phrases that hotels use that I think are overused or, or misunderstood or misapplied, and everybody says it, right? If, you, if you're taking a tour of the hotel, they want to show you their fine dining restaurant. And, you know, like, I, you know, I was laughing, like, yeah, I want to eat in your crappy dining room. Um, and then my next guest is going to have to, I'm going to make him answer this question. Why is it that everybody who works at a spa whispers? <laughs> they always go, you know, say, hey, how are you? I'm fine. I'm good. It's sort of like they're all in the witness relocation program. They don't want to know they're there, you know. But bottom line is Randy Pierce knows all about this because he was working at the spa at the Ritz-Carlton in Orlando where I used to go all the time. He's now the spa director right here at the St. Regis in San Francisco. Randy, what's changed in the spa business? Because in the old days it was like, okay, you got your 60-minute Swedish massage and maybe you had a facial and you were done. That was it, right? Now you have a menu. Yes, Right? Yes. Now, some of it, and, and I would argue this, and you can certainly argue right back, some of it on some spas, the menu is so out of control that it's almost like a stunt. Absolutely. Right? I mean, it's like, really? You know, how many cucumber things can I have? You know, I mean, you've seen it happen at other spas. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And we've all done it. We've all done it. And we learned our lesson. What was um, the craziest one you had at a, at a spa that you went, you finally said, enough already? It, oh, it got up to like 25 pages, you know, and after the price of um, paper got ridiculous, everyone was taking a spa menu left and right, you know, we had to cut it down and just, you know, go back to the basics. And um, But what was the most elaborately stupid one you had or that anybody had? Oh, geez. Uh, I would have to go back to Vegas. You know, those, those big box spas, they just did everything for everyone. And, um, you know, whatever concept you can come up with, they had it. Um, you know, from children's spa treatments to elderly spa treatments. It was the whole gambit. Um, just anything that they could come up with, that whether it did anything or not, people wanted it. 
you know, especially in Vegas. Because they wanted experiential one-upsmanship. They just wanted bragging rights to say, I had that treatment with the cardboard and the sandpaper. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, we, we've, uh, I think we've matured a lot in the spa industry, and we've um, reined ourselves in, and we know what people are looking for now. All right, so let's talk about that. What lessons have you learned, and more importantly, what lessons have you applied right here at the St. Regis? Well, um, it's all about the, the guests now. They've become more um, educated on what is, um, you know, what works now. They've, it, the spa has become much more mainstream. Um, you know, it's not just for, um, you know, your birthday once a year or, um, you know, for the ultra, ultra rich anymore. Um, it's much more mainstream, the, the much more middle class, much, the millennials are getting into it. Um, oh my God, no. Yes, yeah. believe it or not. Um, a lot more gentlemen are uh, going to spas more often because they're more concerned about their looks. Um, so it's, it's... And the treatments themselves? Same. We're catering to a much broader range of guests. Um, but, a, but keeping it more simple. S- simplified, but more advanced. Um, Explain. It's, it's, all, it's more about... Um, instant results, you know, because you don't want to have, it's not about the, what we call the foo-foo treatments anymore, you know, (laughs) and I think you know what I mean by that. It's about um, quality products that have results. Um, Yes, there is still that foo-foo experiential aspect to the, to the treatment. However, you're going to get the results that you're looking for. Um, so if you get a facial, of course, it's still very relaxing and um, enjoyable, but you're going to walk out seeing the difference right then and there. Okay, here's my biggest pet peeve at spas. You ready? Tell me. I don't want a facial at 1 in the afternoon. I don't want a massage at 2 in the afternoon. I want one at 10 o'clock at night, and then I'm done. When will spas stay open late enough and, and even charge me a premium so that, okay, you get your massage at 10 o'clock at night, and then you can slip into a coma? Because if I have one at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, I don't want to slip into a coma at 2.30. i got stuff to do. Uh, totally understandable. Totally understandable. And we offer uh, here at the St. Regis in-room massages for people at that time. Um, we don't keep the spa open. For- but, you, but you still do it. That's great. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. See, that's the key. People need to know it's like, it's like video on demand. It's spa on demand. Mm-hmm. And that way you can, ta- you can basically man- manipulate your schedule that makes the, mess, the, the most sense to you. Absolutely. The charge for looking at this pamphlet is $3. The charge for looking at this pamphlet and putting it back quickly is $4. As many times as I've come to San Francisco, I can honestly say I have not been to the museum I'm about to tell you about. It's a very young museum. It's only been open about 15 years. It's the uh, Museum of the, Amer- of the African Diaspora uh, in San Francisco, and the Director of Exhibitions and Curatorial Affairs, I love that, Curatorial Affairs, uh, Emily Coleman, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you. I mean, it really is a young museum, isn't it? Yeah. 15 years is nothing. It's not. Why here, and why did it open? We really opened um, to create an institution focused on artists and uh, people of African descent in San Francisco. This was to a showcase p- those local artists. Absolutely. So this was really a, a foundational project for uh, Mayor Willie Brown in creating 
um, an institution uh, that was dedicated to people of African descent within the city. And by the way, Willie Brown just celebrated his 85th birthday. It's, it's unbelievable. I remember I remember when he was the lieutenant governor. He's been everywhere. Yeah, and he's still in San Francisco. I see him often. He's still in this building. Mm-hmm. He has a residence in this building. Yeah. Um, amazing. So what's the biggest surprise about, first of all, where you are, how you exhibit it, and how people discover you? I think people discover us um, on a whim, and it's always a, a really exciting discovery. Or the, by accident. Absolutely. I mean, I think when going around um, the Yerba Buena Arts District, not many people know that the Museum of the African Diaspora exists. However, as a contemporary art museum, we really showcase uh, not only local artists, but also important contemporary artists today. Now, what's also interesting about you guys, you are a non-collecting museum, so it means your exhibits are always changing out. Yes. So everything's on loan. Everything is on loan, and currently we have, it's actually the last week of Black Refractions, highlights from the Studio Museum in Harlem. And is any of it for sale? It is uh, not. That is something, uh, as a nonprofit institution, we really leave sales to galleries um, and private collections. So you're, you're maintaining purity here. We are. Of the exhibits that you've done in 15 years, what's been the most interesting or surprising? I would say one of the highlights is definitely Black Refractions, um, but we've also collaborated with uh, SFMOMA in um, the installation of portraits and other likenesses from SFMOMA. We also, I curated a show called Toyin Oji Odutola. Uh, Say that three times fast. I can do it. Go ahead, do Not it. Not a problem. Toyin Oji Odutola. Toyin Oji Odutola. Toyin Oji Odutola. Get a little rhythm going here and we can dance. Okay. And that is a name that you uh, should definitely remember. Um, she had an exhibition here called A Matter of Fact, which then went on to the Whitney Museum um, in New in York. In New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and has um, really been a mainstay and a significant figure in the contemporary art scene. In my experience and study of African artists, there's no middle ground. They are either uh, determined to send a message mm-hmm. about their environment and their existence and their in, I mean, and their daily lives, or they're determined to show the way it was. Uh, but they're always sending a message. I think all artists send a message. I think to focus. But I'm on... talking about a clear message. I don't. I don't believe that. Really? Yeah. Okay, keep going. <laughs> I mean, I think that similar to abstract artists who are not of African descent. Oh, yeah, abstract yeah. I get. But what I'm, what I'm talking about is if you take a look at Cuban artists, for example, mm-hmm. they're celebrating or, or essentially depicting a revolution and a, and a struggle. I don't know if that's uh, always the case for Cuban artists um, in contemporary art practices. Like, I don't know if you would be able to see that in Andy Mendieta's uh, artwork, who does conceptual photography and performance. Okay. You're educating me then. <laughs> but, the, but the work that I've seen mm-hmm. or that has been displayed, and right. I go to Cuba all the time, mm-hmm. is either from the 1940s, uh, and the 1950s, you know, showing cigar girls mm-hmm. um, to, you know, the revolution under Castro. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, there are so many, uh, you know, artists of diverse backgrounds, both in the United States and worldwide, who have, of course, different intentions with their art practices and different outputs. But in terms of the African artists, obviously, we have 54 different countries here. Mm-hmm. That's right. People don't realize there are 54 countries in Africa. Exactly. Right. So. It takes a while for anybody, and um, you could of speak course. from all, your own personal experience, to mm-hmm. be able to differentiate what, what they're bringing to the party. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, you know, I, 
in similar ways that you you can't pinpoint an artist from the different states of the United States. You can't you often can't differentiate um, the different artists from specific countries. Although a lot of those artists will be using different materials. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, my favorite ones are the artists of, of Ghana mm-hmm. and their coffins. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. unbelievable. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I died today in Ghana. The coffin, they would, I would be buried in a 747. You can see that. I mean, seriously. Yeah, they, and you can do that. I, and they do it. Mm-hmm. But those are, those are also not just coffins. They are pieces of art. Absolutely. Yeah. That's been really important and have been included in important um, art exhibitions around the world. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. Hey, Prime members, Peter Greenberg here. You can listen to Ion Travel ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today, and you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. And before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com. If you travel, you know when it comes to love. See you soon. Can't wait. The sky is no limit. You know with your Delta Amex card, being oceans apart means meeting in Aruba. And booking a war travel with your card means saving 15% on Delta flights. You know, kissing under the bridge of size guarantees eternal love because you're the long distance lovebirds. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Takeoff 15 discount not applicable to partner operated flights or taxes and fees. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know. Hey, it's Matt Norlander with the CBS Sports Eye on College Basketball podcast, and it is tournament time, people. So listen to the one podcast that will cover every upset, Cinderella, Bracket Buster Sleeper. We've got it all covered, every round, reaction shows, all the way up through the championship game in Glendale, Arizona. To find us, search Eye on College Basketball podcast wherever you get your podcasts.